Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Uh, this afternoon, it is February 11th of 2015, and our guest is Matthew Lebowitz. He's from Yale University. He's done studies on uh, the way that biological explanations for behavior reduce empathy. And we're going to bring him on in a minute. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Matthew Lebowitz, is with us right now. I'm going to bring him on. Matthew, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show. I read your paper. It's really fascinating. Uh, Tell us, how did you get interested in this topic of uh, biological explanations and empathy? Sure. Well, um, in recent decades, there's been a major shift in the field of um, psychology, clinical psychology, psychiatry, mental health in general, um, toward conceptualizing mental disorders as more and more like biomedical diseases. And there have been lots of scientific advances in understanding the biology of mental disorders, looking at um, neuroimaging and psychiatric genetics and um, and neurobiology in general. Um, and so we've been looking a lot at sort of the consequences of this shift in different um, areas of clinical and social psychology, kind of what what other changes are coming along with this shift. And in the particular paper that I think you're referring to, we we examined how this increasingly biological framework for understanding mental disorders would influence mental health professionals when they consider potential patients. Yeah, give us a little background. In your uh, paper, I was reading about this various explanations. You were particularly looking at uh, empathy, but there's also things like genetic essentialism and... uh, neuroessentialism, which our listeners have probably never heard of. I I encountered them for the first time in your paper. Uh, Tell us what those are and how they relate. Sure. Um, So essentialism is one of those terms that, um, that means a lot of different things in different um, kind of different academic disciplines. Um, But basically, um, I would say that the general term essentialism refers to the belief that um, concepts uh, get their meaning from hidden essences. And, And so all instances of a certain type of thing or kind of thing share a similar, share the same underlying fundamental essence. So um, you might think that, um, you know, all lions have the same underlying essence um, or, you know, all eagles have the same underlying essence, all um, oak trees have the same underlying essence. Um, 
sofas have the same underlying essence. Basically, an, an essence would be the thing that this underlying uh, hidden fundamental property that causes uh, things that are in the same category to share that category membership. And so anything that has that essence is a member of the category, and um, anything that doesn't have that essence is not a member of the category. So um, the essence is the thing that um, is both necessary and sufficient for um, some something in the world to belong to a certain kind or category. Uh, and psychological essentialism is um, this term that's used in psychology to refer to basically people's beliefs about essentialism. So if people if people hold essentialist views about a certain category um, psychologically, then they may see uh, it, it, they may see uh, that they may think about a category as um, defined by an essence. So they may view a category, even if, regardless of what the objective facts are in the world, people might view a category um, like alcoholics or uh, schizophrenics or Native Americans or um, French people or whatever the case may be. Um, they, they may view that category as having a shared underlying essence that causes the shared attributes or features of the category. Um, so to speak to the two specific examples that you mentioned, which are genetic essentialism and neuroessentialism, those are these uh, psychological concepts um, or theories that suggest that DNA or neurobiology, DNA in the case of genetic essentialism and neurobiology in the case of neuroessentialism, um, that those, that, that DNA or neurobiology can serve as that essence, that placeholder in people's minds for an essence. So people may think that uh, all, um, all people of, uh, you know, all, all people that we would consider to be black uh, share the same DNA that causes them to be black. Um, they they have that as the, the that that the the essence of blackness or um, Europeanness or depression um, mm -hmm. rests in someone someone's DNA. Someone has to have a certain genetic makeup to be in that social category, and that would be an example of genetic essentialism. Um, neuroessentialism mm -hmm. is frequently found in people's sort of in lay people's conceptions of mental disorders. So people might think that um, in order to be considered depressed, a person has to have all depressed people share the same neurobiological abnormality, um, and and so neuro there's a fundamental neurobiological underlying essence that causes depression and is shared by all depressed people and differentiates depressed people from non-depressed people. That's just an example of a, a neuroessentialist belief. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so these, these genetic and neuroessentialist beliefs are widespread in people's thinking about mental disorders, regardless of how accurate they may be. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to rephrase this in layman's terms, it would be like, well, all black people are alike and they can never change their nature. They're born that way. That would be a genetic essentialism or uh, 
people with depression have a chemical imbalance in their brain, as we were told over and over by the TV ads, which uh, later they said, wow, that's not really well based in science. Uh, and they're all alike, and they all get cured by the by these magic drugs. Um, would that be a good uh, a sort of characterization of what's going on here? Yeah, I think you've hit upon a really important point, which is that um, some of the consequences of these essentialist beliefs are um, a belief in immutability. So if you think that um, all people of a certain social category are alike because they share the same genetic essence, then you're more likely to think that that those genetically caused characteristics are unchangeable um, and are destined to be static forever. Um, And the same can be true of neuroessentialist beliefs. Mm-hmm. And uh, you talked about, uh, I think, a mechanistic dehumanization, a kind of a reductionism, and you know that's a, that's the huge problem is the dehumanization. You know, people's agency is re- removed. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So, um, dehumanization is a topic of widespread interest in the field of psychology and among people who are interested in kind of relations among people and groups um, because it can be a very pernicious uh, social psychological phenomenon when people uh, see others as less human and it can lead to all kinds of problems like uh, stigma, discrimination, prejudice, violence, etc. And um, Mechanistic dehumanization is a specific type of dehumanization that's uh, been theorized to occur when people see other people or groups as uh, being more like machines or automata rather than human beings. And so um, the type of dehumanization that um, is involved when people see others as as sort of robotic or um, governed by automatic processes outside their control um, and just see other people or or a group of people um, in terms of mechanisms as opposed to human agency and um, and 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 see them more as sort of automatic or robotic mhm mhm. And, and as you pointed that. out, that, sorry, I was just going to add that as you pointed out, uh, it's associated with the re, it, it's associated with the reduction in perceived agency. So if you see someone, if you if if your uh, views of another group of people is characterized by mechanistic dehumanization, then you're likely to think that that group of people um, is completely governed by mechanistic, automatic, sort of robotic, automatic properties. Um, you aren't thinking about that person's behavior or decisions as resulting from that person's own human agency. You're thinking of it as resulting from a mechanistic process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're seeing that all the time. Is, is, uh, yeah, it's like my brain made me do it. I couldn't help it. It was my brain. Uh, my brain was hijacked or, you know, it's like, my agency is separated from my brain and my brain is like this robotic mechanism that does these things against my will. It's like, that's what we're, I'm seeing all the time anyway. Yeah. I, um, 
it's it's really interesting. I, um, I apologize. I feel like I'm using, I'm throwing around all kinds of jargon that's probably not super helpful, but um, what you're pointing out is a, is a type of uh, what is often referred to as dualism, or it's related to dualism, mind-body dualism, the idea that um, the brain is kind of separate from the person. So, like, you know, I didn't do it, my brain did it, um, as though somehow you, your personhood or your mind um, is totally separate from your brain, whereas, um, you know, it's it's still a somewhat philosophically controversial issue, but I think most, at least most psychologists, psychologists and uh, neuroscientists would say that um, the mind and the brain are one thing. So um, to kind of say, well, I didn't, I didn't do it. My brain did it. You know, my brain made me do it. You know, your brain kind of is you. So to say your brain made you do it, something is a philosophically problematic way of looking at mm-hmm. the situation. I, I would say. Now, of course, you know, there. This is a very philosophically complex issue, and people are are still debating. You know, to what extent. Does do neurobiological or even genetic explanations kind of remove personal responsibility or blame or you know do is it valid to say that a person is less accountable for something they do if if it can be traced to neurobiological account or genetic account um, you know that's a controversial philosophical legal ethical issue uh, and a complicated scientific issue. But um, I think it's not treated as um, in the kind of philosophically sophisticated way that it deserves to be treated in a lot of discourse that we see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see a lot of uh, clinicians. I think they give lip service to uh, you know the idea that there's no mind-body duality, but then the, the way they actually talk is if they is if they accept that. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and one other thing that you mentioned was about judges. When judges get uh, biological explanations for behavior, uh, does it affect their sentencing? Yeah, um, that's that's really interesting. Um, a, a really interesting study that came out in the journal Science in 2012 Um by Lisa Aspinwall and colleagues. Um, um, it was by Lisa Aspinwall and Tennille Brown and Jim Tabory. Um, and it was about how bio- biological explanations for psychopathy uh, influence trial judges' sentencing decisions for um, a convict who who is said to be a psychopath. So actually what they found uh, it's a fascinating study. They found that judges um, were likely to give less harsh sentences when they, um, when the defendant's psychopathy was explained in biological terms. Um, so it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting because you know our study was about uh, mental health clinicians and their empathy, which is uh, or our, our studies I should say uh, were about mental health clinicians and empathy primarily, um, and mental health clinicians are very different from judges because judges, a judge's role is to sort of, among other things, 
in criminal sentencing, at least, their role is to determine the appropriate punishment for wrongdoing, um, whereas, mm-hmm. or, or to assign blame and responsibility, which is not so much the job of mental health clinicians, but um, it's inter- so it's interesting to sort of compare and contrast the two cases, but their their findings are fascinating because they they speak to this idea that biological explanations um, really do seem to portray um, or or cause um, actions to be seen as less of less as a result of uh, personal agency or or individual responsibility um, because biology is sort of seen as incompatible with free will. And I think that's sort of where the idea that, where this idea comes from, that if you can attribute someone's behavior or actions to biology, then you they, they must be less blameworthy for their actions. And therefore, if their actions are bad or criminal, then uh, if those actions are biologically caused, um, at least judges and, and lay people, it seems as well, are likely to think that the person deserves less of a harsh punishment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think we've covered all the background information that kind of sets this in its in its place. So now I want to get to the actual meat of the what actual experiments you did and what your results were. Sure. Um, so in this research, um, we had mental health professionals um, from all over the United States uh, basically rate the feelings of compassion and empathy that they experience when learning about hypothetical patients with a variety of psychiatric disorders. Um, but for each disorder, we described two different patients. And for one of them, the symptoms were explained using biological information. And for the other, the symptoms were explained using what we call psychosocial information, like um, information about the person's life history. Um, and in the biological explanation, on the other hand, um, the, things, the factors that were described were things like the patient's genetics and brain chemistry. Um, and then we basically compared responses to those two types of explanatory information and found that clinicians experienced less empathy when a patient's symptoms were explained biologically. And when I say clinicians, I mean uh, mental health professionals. So this our samples mm-hmm. included psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, master's level counselors, um, nurses, etc. And that was our main finding, that uh, the biological explanation um, led to less empathy than the psychosocial explanations did. We also found that uh, biological explanations were generally seen by the mental health professionals as less clinically useful than the psychosocial explanations. Um, Mm-hmm. And so, but but our main focus was on the the empathy effect. Mm-hmm. And did this have an effect on the treatment that people wanted to use? Yeah. So, uh, uh, when a patient's symptoms were explained biologically, the clinicians considered medication more likely to be effective, and considered psychotherapy less likely to be effective um, than in the case of psychosocial explanations. And of course, this is potentially problematic because. In many cases, psychotherapy is a very effective treatment for many disorders. Mm-hmm. And, and that effect in, in terms of uh, treatment preferences uh, has been shown before, so we are not the, this study is not the first to find that. It's been replicated multiple times. Um, the empathy finding is a little bit newer and more novel. 
Mm-hmm. But they're all they're all important findings, I, I, I think. So, as, as I recall, your first two uh, studies focused entirely on what well, purely biological versus purely psychosocial explanations, and then the third study kind of mixed them up, but had the one predominate. Yes. Uh, so. Right, as as you point out, the paper, this paper, which was published in December of 2014 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, contained three different experiments, three studies. Um, and so in the first two, we looked at explanations that were, as you say, either purely biological or purely psychosocial, so the explanations only contained one type of information. Um, and so the reason there are two studies like that is because they different disorders, um, but they use the same experimental paradigm of comparing purely biological explanations against purely psychosocial explanations. Um, but then the paper also includes a third study in which um, the explanatory information talked about both biological and psychosocial factors, but just varied in which one predominated. So basically comparing an explanation that was, you know, 80% biological and 20% psychosocial against explanations that were, say, 80% psychosocial and 20% biological. Um, And in that study where we used the combined explanations, we still found that the predominantly biological explanations uh, yielded less empathy than the predominantly psychosocial explanations. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, were there any uh, effects at all uh, due to the disorder that was being explained? Um, so we didn't look in this in this paper at um, specific what we call in statistics main effects of disorder. So disorders that were mm-hmm. due uh, that were effects that were attributable entirely to the which disorder was being looked at because um, our primary interest was in the effects of biological explanations. Um, so we didn't we didn't uh, look at pure effects of just looking at what uh, which disorder was being considered. But what we did what we did look at was um, what we call interaction effects between the disorder mm-hmm. and the type of explanation. So um, were there times where um, the effects of the biological explanation versus psychosocial explanation differed as a function of which disorder was being considered. And we did see some of that. Uh, In general, the effects that I described earlier um, of the biological explanations were consistent across all of the disorders we considered. Um, Mm -hmm. But there were, uh, and but so so like, for example, uh, I believe all of the empathy effects were, um, pretty consistent across the disorders. The clinical utility judgments in which, where I mentioned before that um, some of the, that that the clinicians tended to see the psychosocial explanation as more clinically useful than the biological explanation, um, that did have uh, one exception based on which disorder is being considered, and that is that um, people, the clinicians um, did not see the the biological explanation as less clinically useful for schizophrenia because uh, presumably because schizophrenia is already conceptualized as a highly biological disorder. And so people 
saw the uh, biological and psychosocial explanations as uh, more more uh, similar in their clinical usefulness or clinical utility than, than they did for the other disorders. And we did see some um, effects like that that for uh, treatment preferences as well, where, um, for example, in in schizophrenia, um, we didn't see as strong of, a, of an effect for uh, basically medication was strongly you know, recommended regardless of whether um, a biological explanation or a psychosocial explanation was present uh, in the case of schizophrenia, presumably because regardless of the t- explanation, um, people see medication as the primary treatment for that particular disorder. Uh, and we sort of mm-hmm. interestingly saw um, a sort of mirror image of that for social phobia or social anxiety disorder, which is maybe, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, one of the more... Uh, the less biologically construed disorders. And so for that, we kind of saw that psychotherapy tended to be uh, highly recommended regardless of whether there's a biological explanation or a psychosocial explanation. So those are some interesting kind of exceptions to our overall pattern uh, where we saw that, you know, we kind of assumed that in, in some cases we didn't, so the effects of the patterns of results that we generally saw across most of our findings didn't apply in some specific cases for some disorders, uh, and those seem to be cases where people's pre-existing beliefs um, about the, the causes or the concept for the etiological conceptualizations of those disorders were, were very strong. So schizophrenia was, you know, strongly seen as, um, you know, biological and um, effectively treated by medication, regardless of the type of explanation we gave and. Uh, social phobia was kind of seen as uh, effectively treated with psychotherapy, regardless of the type of explanation we gave. So, but those were exceptions. That the, the pattern of results that I described earlier, um, in most cases, were were pretty broadly applicable across the the three studies that kind of replicated the same general pattern of findings multiple times. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting the way we view schizophrenia in modern Western medicine. I don't know. Have you seen Tanya Lerman's paper about hearing voices uh, cross-culturally in, I think it was Ghana, India, and the United States? Have you seen that paper? Um, I have. It, it sounds familiar, um, but I don't know if I've uh, read that particular paper or at least read it closely. I'm, I'm familiar with the, you know, I'm not, an, I, I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm familiar with the idea that um, you know, these sort of un- what what are often called unusual experiences or hearing voices, things like that, are pretty widely distributed in the population, and um, the way that they're seen as sort of the um, the epitome of of abnormality um, may you know is, is often argued to be a, a socially constructed or um, or, or, you know, mm-hmm. not as clear-cut as, as we often think. Um, and in fact, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's uh, some people even argue that, um, you know, hearing voices is just sort of another another human trait that some people have and some people don't, and we shouldn't necessarily jump to treat it as abnormal or pathologize it. Um, 
which I think is a very interesting perspective. Like I said, I'm not an expert in that particular area, but um, it, it's interesting, you know, one of the reasons that I find this, you know, area of research and, and actually psychology in general so interesting is because um, the, of these these kinds of questions, you know, what mm-hmm. what is normal, um, what do we... How, why do we pathologize certain things? And um, and you you also mentioned cross cultural differences, which is also fascinating. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a very rich um, area of of study and, and very interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that Lerman talked about was uh, in the United States, the voices people heard generally they were bad they they said bad things they were hateful said hateful things they were perceived as you know harmful outside and uh, in some of the other cultures they were they said things that were helpful people saw heard the voices as being friendly um so it seems that you know our construction of the voices being associated with being diseased uh you know, it seems to affect the, the way it's, people perceive the voices of the world, what people hear from their voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, and I think, and, you know, one of, I think one of the things that, uh, one of the sort of criticisms that is often lodged against um, modern psychiatry and mental health is the idea that these kind of dis- decisions about what is abnormal um, are sort of made in in a in a way that may be convenient, but not necessarily um, not necessarily valid, or or may or that may be somewhat arbitrary, and and may not actually consult the perspectives of people who are actually dealing with these phenomena. Um, and so, I think it's really important to pay attention to um, how people talk about their own experiences, whether it's, you know, what the voices they hear are saying or or any other um, experience that we might describe as a symptom. Um, so, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's also interesting that the people uh, in, well, some of the third world countries, uh, people with schizophrenia had uh, much better prognosis and outcomes than people living in the United States. I'm sure you've heard about that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in schizophrenia per se, but um, I think it's interesting that, you know, this, this strong trend toward medicalization of uh, mental health and psychological experience um, in the United States and and probably other Western cultures um, has sort of been presumed to be uh, a trend that would be really helpful for for treatment outcomes or uh, clinical outcomes, um, but you know as this biologically focused approach to mental health has dominated for for decades um, and the use of psychiatric medications has sharply increased um, and mental disorders have more commonly, you know, come to be seen as 
brain diseases or chemical imbalances. Um, you know, there's really been a lack of of um, improvement in, in clinical outcomes. And I think part of that may be attributable to the fact that when people think of their own psychiatric symptoms or other people's psychiatric symptoms as biologically caused, they're, uh, they tend to be less optimistic about their outcome, uh, about their own mm -hmm. prognosis. And so, for, for example, um, with my collaborator, Wu Kyung An, who is also my co-author on the uh, Clinician Empathy paper we've been talking about, uh, I published some research in 2013 um, showing that people with depressive symptoms who attribute those symptoms to biological causes um, tend to expect to be depressed longer. They're more pessimistic about their own prognosis. That's a really, uh, I think, important clinical issue because, uh, you know, pessimism is a symptom of depression and, and across psychological or psychiatric diagnoses, um, treatment outcome expectancies or just general prognostic expectancies are actually an important predictor of of, of actual prognosis, of, of actual outcomes. And so if we are broadly adopting this uh, way of looking at things, way of looking at psychiatric disorders that makes people pessimistic about their prognoses, um, that may actually be contributing to the the poor actual prognoses that are sometimes seen or, or the, the lack of improvement in, in outcomes. Um, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe that's uh, less of an issue in other cultures where the biological... Um, biological point of view has been less fully adopted. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an issue that's very near and dear to my heart as somebody who was having severe depression for several decades. And you know, I was always telling myself, you know, well, if if you'd been through the same shit I've been through, you'd be, be depressed too. You know, it's like I deserve to be depressed after what I've been through. I, I couldn't help it, which gets causality. And mm -hmm. finally, you know, what I read an ancient uh, Greco-Roman philosopher, Epictetus, you know, one of the Stoics, and he kind of said, well, you're in charge of your own mind. You choose to believe what you choose to believe. If you choose to believe that you want to be depressed, you will be depressed. And it's kind of like, you know, I did that together with a lot of cognitive behavioral stuff, which, you know, actually derives straight from Stoic philosophy. It's like, I managed to switch my thinking around, and I got rid of the right. depression, mostly anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting. You know, it, like you mentioned, cognitive behavioral therapy, and a lot of that is about um, helping people to change their way of thinking about events and and life circumstances, um, and and just their way of thinking in general to be less negatively biased, to um, be, you know change their interpretations of their experiences um, in a way that's less likely to lead to depression or other um, symptoms and, and disorders. And um, But as you point out, you know, that concept is not new. It wasn't invented in the 1970s that people could change their way of thinking about, uh, about mm -hmm. life and that that might change their mood or level of anxiety or well-being. 
you know, that's been around for much longer than way before the term cognitive behavioral therapy was coined. And as you point out, you know, it can be traced to ancient philosophy. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, um, the idea that um, these, the, the idea you were talking about before as in terms of um, feeling like, you know, anyone would be depressed if they had been through what what you had been through, I think is is a really valid point that is sometimes obscured by or can be obscured by the the biological shift. So, you know, when um, some huge percentage of the population is exposed to these television ads um, that that say depression is a chemical imbalance, um, they might you might think okay, well then, you know, my depression must be caused by something that's wrong with my brain when in reality, as you kind of alluded to before, that hypothesis about chemical imbalances causing depression is is really not a scientifically supported notion. And what we do know about depression, you know, one of the things that we do actually know about depression based on epidemiological and scientific study is that, you know, I think there's, I think it would be pretty uncontroversial for me to say, uh, maybe this would be a revelation for some people, but I, I, don't, I doubt it. I think it's, it would be pretty uncontroversial for me to say that based on not only sort of intuition, but also epidemiological and scientific data, that negative experiences cause depression. You know, negative life events are a cause of depression. Um, and so mm-hmm. the idea that we should just sort of put that aside because the real important thing to look at is the brain and chemical imbalances and these kind of fuzzy concepts that don't have a lot of scientific support, I think is a little misguided. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's just everything you do makes changes in the chemistry of your brain. When you study calculus, there's changes in your brain. If you uh, meditate, if you pray in tongues, there's changes in your brain. Uh, you know, if you drive a taxi cab in London, that's one of my favorites. You get these hugely measurable changes in the size of the hippocampus, you know. And, but certainly, driving a taxi cab in London is not a brain disease, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 so interesting that I mean, sometimes I feel like people are still kind of clinging to this idea that anyone who doesn't consider psychological phenomena or uh, mental disorders to be brain diseases is um, is behind the times. Um, you know, you, you, you kind of get the impression that people still think that, but actually, you know, you kind of want to shake them and say, no, like, you're, you guys are the ones that have the kind of unsophisticated understanding of things because of all the issues that you just mentioned, you know. Um, just showing that, um, you know, a psychological experience that people report having is associated with differences in their brains is should just be self-evident. It's not evi- it's not proof that the person has a brain disease. It just means that psychological processes occur in the brain. Um, that's that's not evidence that people have a brain disease. 
uh, as you said, any more than, you know, depression is no more biological than happiness is. There, uh, some, it's not as if some psychological experiences are more, are more brain related than others. It's just that our brain is where, uh, you know, subjective experience occurs. And so, um, you you know, depression mm-hmm. is by. But you, when people say depression is biological or schizophrenia is biological, or mental disorders are biological, that's true in the same way that learning to drive a taxi in London is biological, or learning calculus is biological, or uh, feeling content is biological, or um, perceiving color is biological, or you know, it, it, all subjective experience is biological. So it's um, it's interesting when people focus on the biology of what we define as mental disorders um, and give it this special status as a, a biological disease just because you can observe it, it's bio, you can study its biology. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a real breakthrough for me personally came, you know, I realized this. I could choose to be happy in spite of the negative shit I had gone through in my life. And that was a whole game changer for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, in cognitive behavioral therapy, that's that's a big idea. Uh, it's a, it's about kind of empowering people to to think about things in a way that that doesn't make them unhappy. Uh and, and giving people the tools to be able to do that, um, you know, putting you keep putting people in control to the extent possible of their own psychological experience, and 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 sort of giving people the tools to be their own therapist. Um, and so I think that's a really important point that you're making that you know people, everyone goes through negative experiences in life, some people much more than others, certainly. But, um, you know, the power of thinking that obviously wasn't lost on the Stoic philosophers in ancient Greece that you mentioned um, is is that, um, you know, when you have an experience, there is an infinite number of different ways you could choose to interpret that experience or think about it. And so sort of why not, choose one that's at least not extremely negatively biased, which is the way that, um, for example, people with depression or anxiety often interpret things. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I think uh, sort of the empowerment and control and agency that uh, people have to kind of examine and then hopefully change their own thinking is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Now, I've always found Thomas Zaz to be a very thought-provoking writer. Are there any uh, particular philosophers of psychology that have uh, influenced you in your thinking? Um, yeah. Um, I I think... So you're, you're asking about philosophers in particular? 
Yeah, people who actually talk about the philosophy of psychology, things like is it a disease, is it not a disease, you know, you know, there's been so many arguments. The DSM finally had to adopt mental disorder because they couldn't they get people to agree to call it mental illness. So mm-hmm. yeah, in that area, or or of philosophers in just in more in general. Yeah, um, I think you know there are a lot of people doing really interesting, thought-provoking work uh, in this area. Thomas Zaz is, is um, someone who did, did did very interesting work and wrote really uh, thought-provoking material about this subject. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more familiar with people who are um, working in the field, or, or I'm, I'm more strongly influenced, I should say, with, by, pe- by the work of people who are, you know, in the field today uh, working on these mm-hmm. issues. So, for example, Kenneth Kendler is someone who's uh, a very, very accomplished psychiatric geneticist, actually, and, and psychiatrist who's studied the psychiatry, or, or sorry, the genetics of of mental disorders, um, but has also written a lot of very fascinating um, material or articles about um, the the philosophy of of mental disorders, or and you know what are mental disorders really, and how do we uh, how do we think about them, and what role does biology play in that thinking. Um, Jerome Wakefield is someone who um, has also produced some really fascinating theories and um, has um, written very convincingly about these issues as well. Um, and there are other people who are kind of doing research in my in my specific field in psychology that are um, very influential for me as well. People like Nick Haslam. Um, so, but yeah, there there are a lot of people who are doing um, really really interesting work around these issues. Oh, there's one thing in the experiment I forgot to ask you about because uh, you looked at uh, both the psychiatrists who are MDs and psychologists. Uh, was there any effect of uh, you know your of your approach? Did psycholo- psychologists and psychotherapists have different uh, uh, impressions? Um, yeah, so so um, we did we included in our studies um, all different kinds of mental health clinicians. So that included psychiatrists and also psychologists and social workers and um, all different kinds of master's level clinicians, uh, counselors, people who are who are doing things like you know marriage and family therapy or um, even psychiatric nursing. Uh, so we had a pretty wide range uh, wide range of of training backgrounds, um, and so we, um, because that sort of there are so many different types of training in a sample, um, it is difficult to look at at those at, at the, each one of them separately. But we did do some analyses looking at sort of psychiatrists versus everyone else. So psychiatrists are the only mental health clinicians who go to medical school and explicitly receive their training in a biomedical model. Um, and they're the ones who can prescribe medications, et cetera. And so we looked at sort of how their reactions to the patients, uh, if, if, if reactions to patients uh, differ as a function of whether or not somebody was a psychiatrist or had, you know, had an MD degree. And we did tend to find in general uh, a main effect where uh, 
in general, overall, psychiatrists tended to have uh, to to report less empathy than other types of clinicians, and that could be interpreted as consistent with the overall hypothesis that um, biological conceptualizations of mental disorders or biomedical conceptualizations of mental disorders are associated with less empathy because um, the, the clinicians with the most heavily biomedically oriented training are the, also showing less empathy overall than, than other types of clinicians. Mm-hmm. So that was generally yeah, our find. I'd love to see this experiment done with uh, substance use and uh, get some substance use counselors involved too and see what what they came up with. I think that would be an interesting one to do too. Yeah, it's interesting, um, you know, the question of sort of how does this phenomena differ um, with different disorders um, because, you know, so there's this very pervasive conventional wisdom that biological explanations for mental disorders should have all kinds of beneficial effects, including reducing stigma and um, de- and, and decreasing blame. Um, so, you know, the idea kind of goes that, um, <clears throat> you know, mental disorders, uh, biological explanations for mental disorders are often touted as a way of reducing the extent to which patients are blamed for their own symptoms, since, you know, we don't blame people for other biological diseases like strep throat or glaucoma, and um, normally we would expect that by reducing blame, you would increase empathy and, and decrease stigma. And, um, and you know, unfortunately, there's, all, there, there's lots of, of scientific evidence at this point that biological explanations do not uh, decrease stigmatizing attitudes in general. And I think part of the reason for that is that, um, there, you know, biological explanations do reduce blame, and that has been shown um, in in lots of studies. It's pretty consistent, but it may be that we that people have kind of overestimated the extent to which blame plays a, a part in the, the, the... People may have overestimated how big of a component blame is in the general stigmatization of mental disorders, and uh, this sounds like I'm totally speaking in a way that's completely irrelevant to your question, but the reason I think this is relevant to your question is that um, I think the extent to which blame um, is a part of the stigma differs from disorder to disorder, and it may actually be that for substance dependence, blame is a bigger part of the stigma than it is for other disorders. And so since biological explanations do reduce blame, it may be that for some disorders, potentially including uh, substance dependence, it's possible that you could actually see biological explanations, at least in, for some types of stigmatizing attitudes, um, could, could uh, improve attitudes by reducing blame. Um, there, there, the evidence isn't, there, there isn't, there isn't strong evidence showing that, and in fact, there's some evidence to the contrary. Um, so I would be hesitant to say that, but I think it, it would be a very interesting question because, you know, I think for some, for some disorders, uh, blame is a bigger issue, and biological explanations do seem to reduce blame. Um, you know, we, we, had, we did one study uh, where we looked at ADHD, which is a disorder uh, that often carries a lot of blame along with it. You know, people sort of see the symptoms as just mere naughtiness or misbehavior and kind of blame it on poor parenting or, or um, willfulness and, and 
um, naughtiness of children. And so um, we actually did find it in that study that biological explanations uh, did reduce stigmatizing attitudes. And there's also been some suggestions that that may be the case for eating disorders as well, because those are often seen as just sort of uh, bad behavioral choices that people make. And so if you can attribute it to biology, maybe that does reduce stigmatizing attitudes. And, and maybe that would be more likely to be true for um, substance dependence too, although I, I'm, I'm hesitant to conclude that because I don't think that's really what the evidence has necessarily shown. But I think it would be very interesting to, to do this, do a study like this focusing specifically on substance, substance use disorders because um, I think the issue of blame and personal responsibility is really salient there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, our society has such a big role in uh, shaping the way we view people who use substances. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to give an example. A person with a cigarette addiction, well, first of all, nobody says cigarette addiction. Uh, you, you, you hardly ever hear that. And you never hear, well, cigarette addiction is a brain disease. These people have a brain disease. You know, it's like these are smokers. We expect them to quit. Actually, this tobacco dependence is the one that that has the uh, lowest quit rate. It is the most mm -hmm. difficult to quit. It has the longest half-life. But everybody says, well, they're not addicts. They can quit. It's just cigarettes. It's just, you know, it's just tobacco. They're just smokers. And, you know, and you look at heroin, and, you know, it's like, well, the, these people have a disease that makes them rob your house, and, you know, they're only good if they're abstaining. Of course, lots of people use heroin that aren't dependent on it, too, but you can't, mm -hmm. you know. So there's so many social attitudes wrapped up in substance use that it would, it would that's why I think it would be fascinating to look at. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it's fascinating, you know, how um, how we look at at, at substance dependence and, and dependence on different substances are judged differently, as you mentioned, you know, based on kind of socially acceptable the particular substance is seen as being, and that calculation or calculus or determination is, is in turn strongly influenced by economic considerations and, um, you know, has been influenced by um, kind of corporate lobbying, you could even say, you know, um, alcohol and cigarette uh, manufacturers or, or companies that that sell those products are very powerful. Um, and so, you know, that that plays a role. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's very, it's a very fascinating issue. Um, and, mm -hmm. I think you know even if these bio even if these biological explanations um say for um substance dependence of uh, you know alcohol dependence or heroin or or whatever the case may be um you know even if they do make people seem less blameworthy for their addictions or their their dependences or behaviors uh, or substance use um they may they're they're, they're likely to still um sort of increase the presumption that these people are immutably, fundamentally, uh, essentially, that's just, that's a permanent attribute that they, they, they possess. You know, going back to the idea of essentialism that we talked about earlier, um, biological explanations promote those kinds of essentialist beliefs. And so um, 
it's possible that uh, we're, you know, it, it may do more harm than good to look at the, that people as um, kind of separable from the rest of the population based on some kind of nebulous biological abnormality or essential or, you know, underlying essence that makes them an addict, uh, that, uh, that, that, and that seeing that essence as, as permanent and, and immutable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just really quickly, I'm going to mention, you know, because I, I wrote an article about this recently, you know, in ancient Persia and in ancient Turkey, there were times, you know, where you could uh, eat all the opium you wanted. Opium was totally acceptable, you know, but if you drank a cup of coffee, you would be put to death. Or if you smoked tobacco, you were decapitated for that. But, oh, opium? No, there's no law against opium. It was unthinkable. Sure. Right. But, I mean, it, it's it's just all, um, it, it's all it, it goes to show you how big of a role social conventions play. Well, we're running out of time now. We've been here for a whole hour. It's been a nice, fast conversation, but I'd like to thank you for being our guest. Thank you very much. Okay, everybody, we will see you all next week with another show. So thank you, and bye.